0: So, good morning. I'm told from the uh, sound crew in the back that they're going to be working to adjust. We got a new soundboard, and they're working to adjust it right. So if I start selling, now, sounding like Billy Graham up here, you know they finally got it right back there. Some of you don't know who Billy Graham is. He's this guy was an evangelist for a while. So um, James chapter 4. You have your Bibles. I'd invite you to turn there. As you're turning, I want to take you back into history. Matter of fact, in August of this year, we will mark the 50th anniversary of what at least Texas Monthly and uh, others would say was a watershed moment for crime in the United States. It was after this event that, uh, according to Texas Monthly, again, that Local police departments decided that it was important to have SWAT teams, what we came to call SWAT teams, special weapons and training or techniques and all that, whatever. Um, So uh, any event that carries that kind of attachment to it probably bears uh, important enough for us to look into it some. August the 1st. 1966, Charles Whitman, who was, well, I'll just say it this way. He had already killed his mother and his wife when on that morning he made his way across the University of Texas campus to the tower that is there and he climbed those stairs to the top of that tower with three rifles, two pistols, and a uh, sawed-off shotgun. Just before noon, he fired the first shots and for 96 minutes, a killing spree ensued that found professors and students and tourists ducking behind cars, shrubs, and battening down the hatches inside of buildings. When it was all said and done, Whitman had killed 13 people and wounded 43 total. We hear those kind of stories, especially now, 50 years later, and they don't make that much of an impact on us, it seems. Well, sure, our sensibilities are tickled a little bit by that, but the reality is that those kinds of shootings seem to be commonplace for us anymore. And we can walk across the landscape of the last 5, 10, 20 years of American history, and we find one incident after another of somebody who decides to take it upon themselves to decide who lives and who dies. But that one is noteworthy for me, not because of what Texas Monthly had to say about it. It rather is noteworthy to me because of the sniping element there. That here's a guy who found himself thinking that it seemed appropriate to climb to the tallest building that he could get to, and from there, shoot at will at people down below who had no defense. And I say that understanding, and I want you to understand, that as tragic as that is, I would say that that kind of thing happens inside churches all the time. People who find themselves believing about themselves that they are above others who at random with their words snipe at other people and commit character assassination with their verbal bullets. Yeah, this is an issue. It's an issue for us in the church, it's an issue for us as church people with those who are outside of the walls of our church, and maybe when it's all said and done, Mama was right when Mama said, if you don't have something good to say, so we know the saying, we just don't do it. James calls the first century church to task on just this issue. It, I want to say that it makes me feel better that James had the same problem with the earliest church as we have in the 21st century American church. But It didn't make me feel better at all. It just, you know, misery loves company. We, we, we may all feel better about being together, but the ship still goes down and we all drown. And so I think James has something to say to us today. James chapter 4, we come to verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. NIV says there do not slander others. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so we come to that. You know, the age old say, not from mama's lips now, but from the lips of the victim on the street. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Never where there are less true words spoken than than that one. Because every one of us who has been on the receiving end of those kinds of verbal sniper bullets recognize that words do in fact hurt worse than sticks and stones. As a matter of fact, There are people populating our churches who carry with them the words of a parent or of a spouse or of a friend or of an enemy, and those words are like a malignant cancer that eats at them from the inside out. Words, in fact, hurt much worse than sticks and stones, and James has something to say about that. And so let me just make sure that we, as we come into this today that we all recognize that where we are in this process of looking through what James has to say is, is right in the middle. I, actually, I want to say kind of on the backside of the middle of what James is pushing out into that church that says, if you are going to identify yourself with Christ, one of the things that has to be true is you cannot play like you are God. But that's what they were doing. We go all the way back to chapter 3, verses 13 and following, where James starts talking to them about living their lives with wisdom, under the umbrella of wisdom in their lives. But that looks like, on a practical level, James says, it looks like you just don't act like you're God. You have to let your behavior come underneath the lordship of Christ. Be humble. He says, humble yourselves. So we got into that section beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4 where James pushes out these directives, one after another, 10 of them in just a few verses that are those snapshot pictures of what one who claims to be a follower of Christ should look like, how they live their life. We come to verse 11, and James now changes the way that he's talking Up to this point, he has been given those individual snapshot statements, all of them given as a point in time, do this, don't do that, be this, don't be that. But now in verse 11, James turns and instead of using this as a snapshot in time kind of a directive, now James says it this way, those things that you are doing, stop doing. He's no longer talking on the theoretical side of things and on that side of things that we say, well, we could put this in practice and we should put this in practice. He jumps in in verse 11. We say in the English translation, do not speak evil against one another, but a very literal translation is James says, stop speaking against each other. Okay, so let me just go ahead and you know, call it what it is here and say... Uh, This is going to be really uncomfortable for a little while today. Um, I kind of like the fact that James is the one saying it, so I'm not the one up here taking the hit for his in-your-face kind of stuff. But I never really shy away from those kind of confrontations anyway, so let's just call it what it is. James says something here that 21st century American church life better get. You know, some of the reality is that we find the church really needing to hear this internally. Talk about that as we go forward. But there's another element about this that we really need to get. And that is that we need to talk about this internally so that as we go outside of the walls of our fortress-like churches, out into a world where people are essentially saying, I don't need what you got. You know one of the reasons that they say, I don't need what you got? Because Christians need to hear this message today. Sometimes we take our stands against stuff, and all the world knows is what we're against. And so we start firing our verbal sniper shots that people outside of the walls of our churches and people outside of the walls of our churches are smart enough to know they don't need that. They get that at work. They get that at home. Why would they want to go into a church to get that? So James says, stop speaking evil. The word here, as I said, the NIV translates it as slander. It literally means to speak against someone. It means to be harsh in your language or critical in the way you talk or unkind in the way you speak with people. And one of the things that happens with us is we get kind of sophisticated in the way we handle this kind of stuff. And so we often hide behind those verbal attacks that we put out against people. I'll call it from this point forward today, character assassination. And we hide behind this statement and it eats me up as a pastor when I hear it because somebody sooner or later says, well, it's true. Let me tell you something, okay? Hang on to this. It's not the first time I've said it from here. I want you to get it. Speaking the truth without love is just an attack. Speaking the truth in love is thoroughly divine and biblical So don't hide behind the attempt to get at somebody just by saying it's true. It may be true, but it doesn't mean that you need to say it. You know, if you go back and read through church history, some of what you will find, uh, and it's hard for Baptists to hear this, and I get that, but you know, some of great wisdom comes from church history as we look at the words and the behavior of some of the monks of old, M-O-N-K-S. And while there's a lot of their approach to living out their faith that I don't agree with, uh, one of the things that they got to was some pretty good wisdom from time to time. And this story is told as if it happened, and so I'll treat it as if it did, but uh, ultimately we just don't know. Makes a great point. So here's the deal. This peasant goes to a monk in his area and the peasant is uh, ridden with guilt because he had been engaging in the kind of behavior that James forbids here. He'd been talking about somebody slandering them uh, and somehow... uh, The Holy Spirit or his conscience or whatever happened with him got the best of him and he felt really guilty. So he he thought, I'll go to the local monk and I'll talk to him and see what he says about how I can unload all of this guilt that I'm carrying around. And so he goes to the monk and he tells him what the deal was. And the monk said this, take a bag of feathers and go throughout our village. And at every place where there is a family living, a home there, take a feather out and lay it on the doorstep and move on to the next Place. And when you are finished with that, then come back to me and report. And so the peasant does that and he gets a bag of feathers and he goes to every place in town. It takes him a while to do that through their village and he lays a feather down at every doorstep and he comes back to the monk and the monk says, And so how did it go? And the guy says, It didn't help at all. I still feel guilty for assassinating, in my words, that person's character. To which the monk replied, Okay, so now the next thing I want you to do is I want you to go back to every one of those places and I want you to take that feather and put it back in your bag and bring it back to me. And the guy said, Well, that's impossible. He said, I know those feathers are not going to be there. The wind, even when I put them down, the wind blew some of them away. And he said, it would be impossible for me to go to every one of those places and take that feather and put it back in my sack and bring it back to you. I cannot do it. At which point the monk said, so it is when you decide to use your tongue against somebody else. You never get it back. And the damage that is done to the character of that other person in the hearing of those people to whom you said it is permanent. There's wisdom in that. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that this problem that James addresses here is probably among the top five sins of every Christian in the room. Part of what happens with us, it's just so easy for us to just fall into this evil speech that he's talking about. And part of the reason for that is we, we live in a world that specializes in this. You want a good case in point for what I just said? Flip on the news and watch the political process of our country for the position of president of the United States. It is not about who's qualified to do that. It's about who can survive the salvos of verbal shots that will be taken between now and November. And the money. It's always about the money. This is the speech that kills, James says. So to help us get that, let me come back to kind of get what's behind it. Because one of the things I think is really helpful for us when we see these kind of things is that we recognize what drives this kind of speech. And here's what he says. It is that judgmental spirit that we carry. Look over those two verses, just kind of real quickly scan across those. Look how many times the word judge or judges is used there. One of the things I try to do in our Wednesday night Bible studies Uh, is get really practical in handing out tools when it comes to how do you study your Bible, okay? Because one of the things I want you to get is I don't want you to ever fall into that trap of just counting on the preacher, uh, especially this preacher, to give you God's word to the point that you don't ever need to do anything on your own. Okay, and most of you know me better than to try to do that anyway, Uh, but you don't want to depend on me solely or me and your Sunday school teacher or whatever church you happen to go to. You don't need to depend on us to hear God for you all the time. You need to know what it means to get into God's word and hear what God has to say. You need to spend time in scripture yourself, but in order to do that, you need some tools, and I recognize that. So our Wednesday Bible studies I try to throw tools out there as we use them together so that we handle scripture well. And one of the tools that I want to throw out there for you today is this one. In two verses, when you find a word that is used five times, if I count correctly, then that's a signal to you that's on purpose. This writer is trying to make a point because he uses that word consistently throughout those two verses. So what he's saying to us to boil that down and put it on a level that we can get it, what he's saying to us is that judgmental spirit that is behind the words that we say has to be addressed. Now, let me just stop and say, let's, let's get real practical now about the world in which we live and how it wants to push in to the value system of the church and the Christians especially. We live in the PC. World. Political correctness drives American society. The thought police would love to control how you think. It's just too hard to pull that off and it takes too much time. So one of the things that's happened is it has driven down now into the way we talk and there are things that we cannot say today that we could have said 15 years ago. Now maybe we should or shouldn't have said them, that's another question, but it's just not acceptable. One of the things I love to do when our family gets together is push those limits I love saying stuff that makes my son-in-law go, "Huh." Now he's sitting over here, so I'm just kind of picking on him. I guess did he show up today? He might. They don't. He loves to sleep through church. You see how easy it is to assassinate somebody's character. Now, I, I did all of that on purpose, and he knows that I did all that on purpose. But you see how it is? We can say stuff, and we are attacking somebody, and we don't even recognize it. In our PC society, where tolerance is now the name of the game, isn't it interesting? The tolerance for many people is just a one way street. As long as you agree with me, we'll be tolerant. But if your views go against my views and the views of my people, you can't do that anymore. James, here's why this is important for us. I made reference to this earlier. The world who is outside of the walls of our churches sees Christians being extremely intolerant. Why would they want to come to a Christ who they believe is modeled in the way we live if the way we live minimalizes and marginalizes real people. You see, this doesn't have to be the kind of speech that directly attacks a person. This is the kind of speech that could, in fact, directly attack a whole segment of our population. Consider our world today and our society in America and how rampant is the drive to toleration. How should we behave in that? Because that world that's out there quickly and regularly throws back at us, you can't judge me. You you Christians, you you know, you say you're not supposed to judge. The Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. And so there would be those. By the way, that is a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus has to say there. So let's come to this one where James is calling them to task for their judgmental behavior that drives the words that they use that attack people. But here's a news flash for you. James is judging them to get to this point. <laughs> Through this whole section, James, one time after another, is building off of his judgment of them that they are behaving in a way that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do you do, you know, does James just totally ignorant of his own reality there or does James know something? Is he pushing something for us that helps us strike the balance in this day and age? So let me take you to school. Now, I know that we have a bunch of us in here who are in school. If you're in school right now, raise your hand. I'm not like right now, right now, but these days. If you're in school, okay, I feel so sorry for y'all. I'm really sad for you. Um. How many of you are educators in here? I feel even more sorry for you. Um, but Let's go to the classroom here. If you as a teacher hand one of these brilliant students that we have right here. The, all, the bri- all, this is the brilliant section. Other ones are scattered around, but this is the brilliant section. Other brilliant ones are scattered around. Don't miss what I'm saying. And you give these brilliant students a test, and on the test, you ask, what is the sum of two plus two? And one of these brilliant people here says, the sum of two plus two is 459. Is that right or wrong? I love that answer. Okay, One of our math specialists down here said it's right. Two plus two is 459. Right or wrong? Hello, are y'all still there? It's, is it right or wrong? I know you're gunshot now. You're going to, wait a minute. This is a trick. Okay. It's not a trick. Okay, I know that they're doing common core math, right? I don't even know what that means, okay? I didn't know math when math was math. I sure don't know what it is now, okay? But I'm pretty sure that two plus two equals 459 is just wrong. That's not even close to right, correct? All right, so here's what you just did. You said there is a standard that we follow. Isn't it interesting that in a world that drives for tolerance, there are some things that we come back to to say, no, there's one answer and that one answer is right. It's interesting to me that on the things about how we relate with one another and the political process and the social bumping up of the friction of one group against another, oh, we can say there are no rules for that. But when it comes to math, then somehow all of a sudden it is all about the rule in that case. So the question then, as we pull it down to what James is saying on this whole thing of being judgmental or judging, the question is, what is the standard that we're going to use to say what's acceptable in Christian living? I wish it was as simple as two plus two equals four. But God somehow decided it would be okay for us to have to figure that out generation to generation on how we're going to get along. That's not exactly a good statement. Because reality is God has in fact given us the standard by which we judge the health of our relationships. And to judge anybody outside of those standards, well James says you make yourself out to be God. Let me show you what I mean by that. First of all, here's my own personal definition of what judgment means here it is the condemnation of someone for voluntarily, excuse me, for violating arbitrary standards. Let me back that up. Judgment is the condemnation of someone for violating arbitrary standards, the moving target the blurred lines of our day with the result of damaging the individual, the fellowship of the church, and the cause of Christ. James is saying that our behavior and especially our verbal behavior towards other people when it is laced with things that condemn them based on my standards And it causes damage to them, to the fellowship of this church, or any church, or the cause of Christ generally. James says, stop doing that. He doesn't say, work on it. (laughs) He says, stop it. In other words, when we use our own standards that ultimately end up in alienating other people in the cause of Christ... We're guilty. It is the critical spirit that kills. But you know, this is hard for us because we, for the most part, all of us have PhDs on being critical. The critical spirit. It's just the person who says, I'll be God, I'll set the standards, and everybody who doesn't measure up uh, well, woe on them. I love this story. It's probably a preacher story made up, but still a good story. These two guys were taxidermists. They, you know, like the deer heads in your homes and that kind of stuff. But these guys specialized in birds, Uh, And they found themselves at a place and they looked out and mounted to a fence was an owl. And so they're talking about it and uh, they decide that uh, that was probably the worst taxidermy job of an owl that anybody could ever imagine. And so one guy was saying, you know, look at the eyes. You can just tell that those are not real. They're, they're, They're too close together and, you know, it's just wrong. Uh, And the other guy was going, yeah, the beak is offset. You know, whoever did that is just a horrible taxidermy guy. And as they were having that discussion, the owl just flies off. (laughs) That's the picture of us setting our own standards and then judging everybody against those standards. It's just not rooted in reality. And so... Here's why that's so, so dangerous in the life of the church. The person with a critical spirit who feels an obligation to open their big mouth about it is the one who mounts a tower of lofty heights and verbally shoots everybody underneath them. Serve the church As a youth minister, there's nothing lower on the totem pole of church staff people than a youth minister. Right? Aaron, wake him up, would you? Uh, Actually, it's not true. I told the early service when I got to this point, I said, well, actually, the only thing lower than that is a children's minister. And, uh, okay, so just so you know, I'm, I'm hacking on, what's your name again? It's a good friend of mine. I'm hacking on Aaron a little bit, and I was hacking on Kevin over there, but I, I'm playing, but I also want you to see how easy it is. We, we just fall into that attacking kind of language, and sometimes we hide behind it as joking, but the other person may not know that it's joking, and for sure, the 400 other people listening don't know that it's joking, okay? So hear me. I was joking with him, Okay? There's nothing, I mean, there is stuff a lot lower than a youth minister on a total pole. Like a pastor is way lower than that. So I was serving this church as youth as a youth minister. When one Sunday the pastor preached the sermon, did the invitation, came back up behind the pulpit, and resigned the church and took two weeks and then was gone. And it fell on the lowly youth minister, that was me, and two other paid staff positions there to kind of lead that church through the transition phase from that pastor to the, uh, well, to months later when the church called a pastor. And I'm taken back now, along the lines of what we're reading here today in James, I'm taken back to that passage in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul is kind of on his final journey, uh, and he pulls the leaders of the church at Ephesus together before he leaves them for the final time, and he says something to this effect. He said, when I leave, wolves will come out into the congregation. And let me tell you something. In that church, when that pastor walked away and those of us, those three of us who were the pastoral staff were left. Let me tell you, the wolves came out in droves in that church. I got an up-close look as a young minister at just how ungodly, how demonic some church people could be. And so the guy that was the senior level staff person then um, was a nice guy but he was afraid of confrontation and the church knew it and the wolves sure knew it. So in that mix several months after the pastor left and we were full blown into a church burning itself up I got a phone call from somebody in the church that said one of the dear little old demonic ladies excuse me she was not a lady she never was a lady she was just a woman she had decided that the music minister of our church and his wife had gone down to a place about an hour and a half away, South Padre Island, just call it what it is, and for their anniversary had gone out to eat and danced with each other. Oh, my soul, are you kidding me? Now, one of the great lies, or let me me interrupt that to say this. Um... Just because we have traditionally done something or not done something doesn't it make it right. It just makes it a bad habit. And in this case, dancing happens to be one of those. A lot of people say Baptists don't dance. I, I've seen some Baptists in this room cut a rug, buddy. I'm telling you. The <laughs> only reason I don't dance is because I have no rhythm. For those of you listening by radio, we don't have it, we're not on the radio just so you know. My wife just slammed me right there. So anyway, uh back to it. Um it is a fallacy to say Baptists don't dance, okay? It just just it's just wrong. But in this case, that woman I'm reminded as I think of her about the guy who was talking to this guy who wasn't a church guy. He was trying to convince him that the devil was real. And the, the other guy, the guy tried to be convinced, or the, he said, you don't have to convince me that the devil's real. I married his sister 20 years ago, man. I, I know. Okay, that's this woman. She was his sister that I'm talking about. And she, I mean, it was not enough for her to just plant the rumor out there. She was working it. And so I found out about it, and I, it was tearing the church up. And it was about to ruin the ministerial career of a guy who didn't need that. And so I went to the senior staff guy, and I said, this is what's going on. I'm going over to her house, and I'm going to confront her with that. Oh, my goodness. No, you can't do that. I said, you hadn't watch me do that. I'm on my way. You can't do that, Mark. You, you, you can't do that. You don't know what she's going to do. I said, I know what I'm going to do, and I'm getting ready to get in my car, and I'm going over there, and we're going to get to this because this is demonic in the church. So I went and sat down in her living room and used scripture to point out to her how that behavior would not be tolerated in the church. Let me tell you something, there's nothing worse than being told by the youth minister that you're out of line. Now, I'm not, Aaron knows it's not about him. I'm just talking about generally speaking people in the church. Somehow they've set up these false divisions that somehow any staff member is below another staff member. That's just not true. We're all called of God and equipped by him. Let me tell you something. That doesn't stop with the staff, though. What would it be like in a church if the church said, we're not going to put up with that kind of behavior anymore from our people? But you see what happens in a sermon like this. Some people get all offended. Well, you know what? Throw a rock and a pack of dogs. You know which one yelps? The one that got hit. That's the one that yelps. So yelp away. And so there will be some who will hear this who need to hear this and they'll walk away and they'll be offended at the preacher for doing it but they're not going to be offended at scripture for saying it's not acceptable. And whether they get it or not, it creates an environment for us as a church where we say we're not going to put up with that. So when somebody in your circle decides they're going to start committing character assassination, shut them down. Scripture. Well, look at the time. Maybe we should sing. One last thing. James caps it by saying, when you do this, verse 11, the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. And judges the law. He's not talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the law that Jesus said that is referred to in other places as the royal law. He's talking about the two great commandments that Jesus gave. You love God and you love people. And this is behavior that does neither. And you cannot usurp the position of God. But when you climb into a lofty tower and start firing verbal bullets that kill people. You take your position above God. I will say to you, woe to you when you try to take God's position. Having said all of that, let me finish with a up note for you. None of us are exempt from this. You gotta know, I didn't sit in my office and try to decide who is it I'm going after today. This is what James is saying to us. All of us struggle with this. So when you fall, make the choice to fall into grace. Because even this sin is not beyond forgiveness. And Jesus himself says, come to me. All of you who are weary. You're tired of doing the life thing. I'll give you rest. Rest. Musicians, come on up. And as we do this invitation time, here's my request to you. Why don't you fall into grace? None of us can walk out of here and say, Well, I'm glad I've never done that stuff he was talking about. All of us have done this. This is the way of our world. Fall into grace. Forgiveness is there. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to take this time. Use it for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.